It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This episode contains discussion of murder and violence. Today on the show, we'll be once again returning to the topic of the University of Idaho Murders, and doing some legal analysis on some recent developments in that case. To be more specific, recently, the defense attorney for Brian Kohlberger and Taylor filed uh, a discovery request. The states responded to that. We're going to discuss that. And also, Ms. Taylor has found herself at the center of a bit of controversy in terms of a possible conflict of interest. We're going to be discussing that as well. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet 
gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is... The University of Idaho Murders, Discovery and Conflict of Interest. We're going to start by talking about some discovery issues. As a quick reminder, discovery is the process by which the defense gets information from the prosecution about what sort of evidence the prosecution has and intends to present or may or may not present. And the reason this is done is so that the defense has an adequate opportunity to respond to whatever evidence the prosecution has. It levels the playing field a bit. So in courtroom dramas, you're probably used to seeing the prosecutor whip out some last-minute evidence and nail the defendant on the stand, proving that they're guilty of whatever they've been charged with. But those are inaccurate. That's not how it works. The defense has to know everything going into things. We often get questions about this. People say things like, well, surely the prosecution doesn't have to share everything with the defense. And what's your response to that? They do. If you allow the prosecutor to make decisions about what is or is not important or what is or is not shareable, the prosecution may have different ideas about what is important and what is not. And sometimes an overlooked detail may prove to be crucial. So it's best to err on the side of sharing everything. And if we want to know the truth, it's important that the, uh, the defense be properly apprised. So if they have some, so if the prosecution has some evidence that's potentially misleading, the, the defense will have an opportunity to explain it. So with all of that in mind, uh, what happened in terms of discovery in this case? On January 10th, 2023, Ann C. Taylor, a public defender representing Brian Koberger, the defendant in this case, filed a discovery request with the court and basically was asking for a kind of a, a several different buckets or categories of relevant discovery. And we can go in and briefly describe some of those. I don't think we necessarily need to go in depth and read every word of this document, but we can kind of analyze this. And I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind, we've covered the Delphi murders in Indiana in the past, and there were some discovery motions in that that we talked about. And speaking with defense attorneys in particular, we heard feedback that a lot of discovery motions can be 
relatively pro forma or boilerplate, meaning that they're basically using a document that they've used in like a lot of other cases, maybe slightly modified to to get with the specifics of their case. But we shouldn't read too much into things in this document, I guess, is is something to keep in mind, because um, as you'll see in this document, there's a kind of a few wrinkles where you're kind of like, oh, interesting. Could this tell us something about the case? But if it's a boilerplate document, not really, because they're just making it as broad and expansive as possible, just in case, essentially. It's just a, a measure to ensure that they're getting everything, even things that they likely don't think will be relevant to this case. So that's just a little caveat before we begin. So all in all, there are 18 categories of discovery material that the defense is specifically requesting. So I'll address the first two categories to start with. Number one is statements of the defendant, and number two is statements of co-defendant. So, of course, when you're reading co-defendant in a case where there's only been one publicly named defendant, everyone's ears immediately perk up. Uh, when I read that, the first thing that popped into my mind was when Koberger was arrested, he supposedly asked, did you make any other arrests? Yeah. And so, I, I, you know, that being said, as intriguing as it is, I think I, I chalk that up to being a boilerplate ask. Uh, uh, it's 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 the defense basically saying, well, you know, just in case there's anything we don't know about, uh, give us that documentation, too. Because obviously, if there was a co-defendant, that would be very important for Koberger's case and their defense of him, because they could possibly have somebody else to say, well, no, he was doing most of it or or they were doing this or that. So, I mean, I, I don't I don't think this means that the state thinks that Koberger acted in concert with anybody else. That's my take. Obviously, if we get new information that they are, in fact, looking at uh, accomplices or whatnot, then that changes things. But I, I just think we should really remember the whole part about boilerplate language and the defense keeping this as broad as possible. And then, of course, the number one ask statements of the defendant is a little bit more straightforward. They're basically, um, and I'll read a quote to give you a sense of what they're talking about. Permit the defendant to inspect and copy or photograph any relevant written or recorded statements made by the defendant or copies thereof within the possession, custody, or control of the state, the existence of which is known or is available to the prosecuting attorney by the exercise of due diligence, and also the substance of any relevant oral statement made by the defendant, whether before or after arrest to a peace officer, prosecuting attorney, or his agent, and the recorded testimony of the defendant before a grand jury, which relates to the offense charged. So basically, what did Koberger say to, to a relevant uh, law enforcement official? We need to be able to look at that. Speaking generally in criminal cases, if your defendant confesses or makes incriminating statements... You want to see, well, can we get thrown, those thrown out due to, you know, Miranda violations or uh, could this be explained away? You need to be looking at what is the playing field here so we can basically try to defend our client against those possible statements or incriminating statements or see how his story differs from the facts. A defense attorney is going to need to know all of that. That's absolutely correct. And to jump ahead a bit. On January 23rd of uh, 2023, the state filed their response to this discovery request and indicated that, yes, any relevant written or recorded statements that Kohlberger made would certainly be turned over. 
as well as any statements made by a, uh, I guess, a theoretical co-defendant. Yeah. We again, we should not look at that as the prosecution saying there is a co-defendant. It's more of just lawyers like to nail everything down. Is that fair, Kevin? That's fair to say. Yeah, it got to, you know, be careful and be very, very precise and, you know, both precise, but also a bit kind of general because you don't want to not ask for something and have it become relevant later. And then sort of looped in with all of that is the third ask, which is, which concerns Koberger's prior record. What they're asking for specifically is a copy of the defendant's prior record, if any, as is then or may become available to the prosecuting attorney. So basically, you know, did Koberger commit any crimes before this? The prosecuting attorney is going to be very interested in that. So is the defense attorney. There's limitations to how much the prosecuting attorney can drag his criminal record into this case, I would imagine. Right, Kevin? You can't just say, oh, you were jaywalking a few years ago. You know, that means you're a bad person. That that That's going to, that a judge is not going to allow that. But if there's something relevant there. If there's something relevant, it would likely be allowed. And again, in their response to this motion, the prosecution said, yes, if, the, if uh, Kohlberger has any criminal record, we're certainly sure of that. And again, if you're surprised that the prosecution is agreeing with all this, uh, that's just truly how discovery tends to work. The defense asks for something. They ask specifically, we'd like this, this, and this. And then if, if it's within the rules of discovery, the prosecution says, yeah. If, they inc- if, the, uh, if the prosecution incurs discovery violations over the course of their case and they win, uh, they could see that conviction overturned on appeal, essentially. So it's very important that they not mess around with holding information back from the defense. Exactly. It's important to note that categories 4 through 18 are all basically different types of information that the defense is asking for. I'll kind of read through them briefly, and then we can kind of touch upon a few and and look into the response. Okay. Basically, what they're asking for is four documents and tangible objects, five reports of examinations and tests, six state witnesses, seven expert witnesses, eight police reports, nine digital media recordings, 10 search warrants, 11 exculpatory evidence, 12 inducement, 13 identification, 14 evidence pursuant to IRE 404, 15 electronic surveillance, 16 drug tests, 17 subpoenas, and 18 certifications. So basically, different types of evidence they can get. And we will go through some of those now and and talk about them. For instance, if you have a psychiatrist, psychologist come in and give Kohlberger an examination to determine his mental state, if the prosecution does that, the defense wants to know about it. If the, if the prosecution has conducted any tests to determine how the crime may or may not have been committed, the defense wants to know about that. Uh, when they talk about it's exculpatory evidence, that's just a way of saying, if you happen to have any evidence that suggests Kohlberger was not the guy, you got to tell us about it. So exculpatory evidence, could that be as simple as like some crank calling in and doing a false confession? Sure. Yeah. 
So anything like that, uh, there was a lot of scrutiny in the Idaho case on a few different figures over time in social media. So I'll be curious if any tips came in on any of those parties that could be exculpatory for Koberger. Basically, let's point the needle away from our client and onto somebody else. Or even if without having somebody to necessarily point it at, just evidence that points away from him in general. Yeah, exactly. Or some of there's like cell phone evidence in this case. If they have some sort of report that suggests maybe cell phone evidence is not reliable, we need to know that. If you have uh, evidence of other cell phones being near the crime scene, we need to know that. Or if, if you talk to an eyewitness who claims they saw Kohlberger in another part of town at the time the murders uh, happened, we need to know that. So anything that could theoretically exist which might exonerate him. That doesn't mean that this evidence is reliable or trustworthy. It's just they need to turn over everything. One significant chunk of this deals with two different types of witnesses. So you have the state witnesses, and that would refer to people, everyday people who were somehow caught up in all of this. An example of that would be, of course, DM, the housemate to the Ford victims who saw a man in a mask and came face to face with him after the murders, essentially, as this person was leaving. And I imagine that, you know, she could potentially, since she was cited in the probable cause affidavit that the prosecution had, I imagine that she could potentially be considered a state witness and may be called to say, what did you see that night? What did the person look like? They were masked, but what other, you know, they meant she mentioned the bushy eyebrows of the person. So um, she might be somebody who might be looking at, you know, being a state witness in this case. And of course, the defense wants to know about that. Who do they plan to call? Because then they can start to work to possibly dismantle some of their claims or push back or kind of find find a way to make them seem less credible to the jury, which I imagine is what you sort of ultimately want to do here. Exactly. And of course, you know, in that case, there's been a lot of public scrutiny around DM or why didn't why didn't she raise the alarm earlier? And, you know, that the defense could possibly pick up on that, too, I would imagine. Yeah, that, that would certainly be something I think a defense attorney would likely uh, want to address. Yeah, le- at least be thinking about. So in their response, the state is generally agreeable to most of these requests. But there's a couple of things in their response that I think are worthy of highlighting. And I'd like to start with paragraph 10. To the extent that information exists regarding an informant who is not going to be produced as a witness including recordings or written statements of an informant or that identify an informant, such information is not subject to disclosure and the state asserts informant privilege under Idaho Criminal Rule 16G2. So again, that's one of those things that sounds potentially interesting because when you read that, the first thing that comes to mind is they must have a confidential informant that they don't want the defense to know about. And that that gets your mind spinning. Who could this be? What sort of information could they have? Let's take just a second to look at the specific rule they are citing so we can see exactly what it says. 
Disclosure must not be required of an informant's identity unless the informant is to be produced as a witness at a hearing or trial. So what the prosecution said was accurate, that if we don't intend to use an informant as a witness, we can protect their identity. That is interesting, but it could also be boilerplate. Yeah. And continuing along those lines, I'd like to read something else from their response. And this is paragraph 12 of the state's response. Wherever this response indicates that certain evidence or materials have been or will be disclosed or otherwise made available, such indication should not be construed as confirmation that such evidence or materials exist, but simply as an indication that if such evidence or materials exist, they have been or will be disclosed or made available to the defendant. So basically they're saying just because we say we will turn something over doesn't mean that material actually exists. And so that that could also very likely mean that just because we say we won't turn something over, it doesn't mean that that exists. It just says that this is in a category that we shouldn't have to turn it over. Yeah, and I imagine if you're the prosecution in that case, even if you don't have a confidential informant in this case, you don't really want to play games when the rules are on your side. You want to say, no, we don't have to do this in general. And also then in the future reference, you can you know continuously continue to vigorously defend that rule that favors your side. So, I mean, that I, I, you know, my, my conspiracy brain or my brain that kind of likes to jump to conclusions sometimes you're like, wow, confidential informant. But I think, I think there's a strong possibility that this is completely boilerplate and that's not relevant to this case. I think that's my instinct too, yeah. but we'll just wait and see. I, well, our motto at the murder sheet, or our unofficial motto, is the boring answer is usually correct, and and the boring answer is that this is all boilerplate. There's no confidential informant, but it's just two sides doing what they typically do. Exactly. I will get into the second category of witnesses that I mentioned. We had the state witnesses. We mentioned the DM. You know, people who saw things kind of got caught up in this case and then expert witnesses those would be people who possess some sort of expertise that the prosecution is bringing in to basically say explain the evidence for the jury in a clear way that they find convincing so that could be people who are you know crime scene expert analysts or crime scene technicians who are basically saying you know, when we see this sort of blood splatter, here's what that means. Or basically breaking everything down for the jury. And the defense is going to want to call their own witnesses potentially to counteract some of that. So in order for them to effectively do that, they need to be aware of what the prosecution has in mind so that they can possibly bring out their own experts. We've talked with experts ourselves on this program for other cases. And one thing that kind of has come across clearly from those talks is that the defense is not allowed or it's it's very much often frowned upon for the defense to bring people on and have them like just completely make up stuff. I mean, that's that's unethical. Right. But but they're they're certainly allowed to, you know, ask questions, poke holes, ask questions about like, was this test properly conducted? Is this up to standards? And that's really where a lot of this interplay can take place. And one thing we've heard from both prosecutors and defense attorneys who we've talked to on the program and on background 
is that, you know, there can be a lot of sway between, you know, whose experts are more credible, who is the jury going to believe? I thought number 12 was interesting that regards uh, that's in regards to inducement. Provide to the defendant all documents pertaining to the existence and substance of any payments, promises of leniency, preferential treatment, or other inducements or threats made to prospective witnesses within the scope of United States v. Giglio and Napu v. Illinois and their progeny. Okay, so this is basically, again, most likely boilerplate language, but, you know, if, if, if this also sort of speaks to the whole co-defendant thing. If you have people who are both facing the same charges and you make a deal with one, the jury needs to know that because that is going to color their view of that person's testimony. Or if you're saying, hey, you know, we'll drop the drug charges against this witness if they talk. I mean, any sort of deals like that have to be disclosed. So basically defense is just asking, you know, in in the interest and transparency for the jury, we need to know if you cut a deal. So that takes us through most of the what I felt was the interesting substance of the defense's discovery requests and the prosecution's response. I didn't see any huge surprises in this. And some of the things that could potentially be surprising could likely be chalked up to boilerplate language. That's my reading, too. Uh, now, the other thing that's been going on with the defense is that Kohlberger's public defender and Taylor has recently found herself in the middle of a small controversy. And it's a controversy that at least at first casual glance does not look too good. And we will talk about that and what we think about it right after we hear these words from our sponsors. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's R-O dot C-O slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So here's what's going on. About a week after the murders, Kara Northington, the mother of victim Zanna Kernodal, face some drug charges and we're going to call we're going to refer to her as Kara Northington because that seems to be how she prefers to identify herself although some media identify her as Kara Kernodal. So Miss Northington faced these drug charges and in these charges she was represented by a public defender named Ann Taylor. Now Ann Taylor was subsequently appointed to represent Brian Kohlberger. Brian, of course, is accused of killing Kara's daughter, Zanna. When Ann Taylor took on that role, she did withdraw from the mother's case. But the mother has made it very clear in media appearances that she's not happy about this situation. She feels heartbroken. She feels a sense of betrayal that this person she says she trusted is now going to be defending the person who is accused of killing your daughter. And at first glance, that does kind of leave a bit of a bad taste in the mouth. It's bad optics. It doesn't look good. No. And so what Miss Taylor would be accused of here would be conflict of interest. And so that leads us to what is conflict of interest? And a conflict of interest in a legal situation would be when an attorney represents someone whose interests either don't align with the interests of the attorney or whose interests may be in conflict with another client. Can you give us a hypothetical example of what that could look like? Let's say, for instance, you wouldn't want an attorney to represent both sides in a divorce case. Oh, geez. Yeah. Uh, that would be awful because the differ- the attorney would get personal information from the wife, which they could use then use against the husband and personal information from the husband. That would be bad. Or like, let's say in a more melodramatic example, a, a prosecutor is trying somebody who's can you know charged with killing the prosecutor's son. You wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want that. Or another example, I don't have an uncle named Jim. Let's say let's say I have an Uncle Jim and I have a life insurance policy on him that if he's murdered, I get a million dollars. If he commits suicide, I get nothing. And then Anya is accused of committing the murder of Uncle Jim. And she's the only suspect. If I represent her, if I am able to get her acquitted, basically I lose my insurance policy. So it'd be in my interest to help Anya get convicted. So I get the insurance policy, 
And that would be a conflict of interest. Does Thanks make, a lot, Kevin. Does that make sense? Mr. Perry Mason over here. Yeah, I, I that does make sense. Basically, you, you can't be incentivized as an attorney to do a poor job. Yes. Sort of sounds like. Or it, maybe there's also an element of being emotionally compromised. Is that is my prosecutor example even a conflict of interest or is that off base? No, I think that's valid. Yeah. Okay. Because that that would color the prosecutor's judgment. Right. And, and, and if it's, yeah, if it's his son, he's going to try really hard, but maybe there's exculpatory evidence that if he wasn't compromised emotionally, he would be like, oh, we should look elsewhere. So yeah, basically emotions and financial incentives and uh, professional incentives and serving uh, as an attorney do not mix well. <laughs> and as I said, if Mr. and Mrs. Smith are divorcing, then a single attorney can't represent Mr. and Mrs. Smith. They need different lawyers. But hypothetically, let's say Mr. and Mrs. Smith are not divorcing. They've reconciled, but Mr. Smith got a speeding ticket and Mrs. Smith got a jaywalking ticket a month later. It wouldn't seem to be a conflict for the attorney to represent both of them in that case. No, unless there was some sort of secret plot between the Smiths to like frame one or the... I mean... If that's just as simple as it sounds like, right. So in other words, you can represent two people whose interests may theoretically be in conflict in certain areas, but if you represent them in areas where their interests are not in conflict, that's not necessarily a conflict of interest. Okay, so that sort of maybe opens up a more nuanced discussion of Miss Taylor switching from representing Miss Northington to... Mr. Koberger. It's unlikely that the the drug case that Miss Northington faces, it's unlikely that any information or evidence in that case would be in any way connected to the murder of her daughter. Right. And the fact that she's dropped the Northington case would indicate that there's no opportunity for further uh, information to come up that would benefit the defense because she's kind of severed ties with that case. Yes. Now, attorney-client privilege certainly holds. So if Miss Northington, when she had this relationship with Miss Taylor, if she told her things that were private and confidential, uh, Miss Taylor could not use them in the defense of Koberger. But again, it's difficult to conceive a realistic situation where Miss Northington would have information available to her that would help out Brian Koberger in his trial. So basically, while Miss Northington's feelings of betrayal and, and being upset are not invalid and, and are certainly understandable given the circumstances, the the legal question of is there conflict of interest here, at least on the surface, appears to be no. Yes. And Miss Taylor is a very respected figure in Idaho law. We can imagine situations that might be a little bit awkward. In other words, I think we can imagine a situation where the prosecutor would call Miss Northington to the stand and to talk about, here's what my daughter was like, or post-conviction, assuming Mr. Koberger is convicted, uh, there might be a victim impact statement that uh, Miss Northington delivers to the court. It might be 
awkward in a situation like that for Ann Taylor to then get up and cross-examine her. So I imagine in situations like that, she would wall herself off and have another attorney do it. Her co-counsel, presumably. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Um, so th- this all this, though, raises the question, like, why even have Ann Taylor do this? Because there is this thing that doesn't look good. Why not just have another public defender do it? Wouldn't that just make things easier? Yeah, I would have avoided any of this controversy in the first place. And the answer to that is some cases are more complex than others. Just the average public defender is not considered uh, qualified or certified to handle a potential death penalty case. If you want a public defender for a death penalty case, that public defender needs to be death penalty certified. There have not been any announcements about whether or not the death penalty would be sought in this case. But I think we can all imagine that it's a realistic possibility that it might be. This this is a quadruple homicide that took the lives of these young people right at their prime of their existences uh, in an awful fashion. I could imagine that the death penalty is on the table. So then you want to assign it to a public defender who is death penalty certified. And as it happens, in that part of the state, Ann Taylor is literally the only person who meets that definition. Another thing I want to point out is that from the media reports around this and your discussion of this and what we sort of looked into it in our research is that Ann Taylor was assigned to this case. So, you know, I think maybe people and, you know, in fairness, me as well, you get the idea at first, oh, you're dumping your former client to get to a more high profile case. But when there's an element of she's the only person qualified for this and she was assigned it, I don't think that's necessarily a fair interpretation of the events. And again, I'm not trying to, we're certainly not trying to invalidate Miss Northington's feelings on this. I, I think anybody can understand in her position that this would be hurtful and upsetting. And you'd feel like, like seriously, like you're casting me out to go defend the person who, you know, is accused of committing a heinous murder that took the life of my daughter. But as far as how the law works and the legal mechanisms that the system is based on, it's not, it's not something that Ann Taylor should be, you know, professionally censured for or, or that she should be attacked for, I think. Yeah, certainly as a human being, seeing Miss Northington on television and reading some of her quotes about how this makes her feel, my heart goes out to her because clients trust their attorneys. They need to trust their attorneys. This is somebody you see is looking out for you and is standing by you in some of the most stressful times of your life. She trusted this woman. This woman is now trying to get the man accused of her daughter's murder acquitted. I can understand that. And you never want to have a situation where a former client is feeling betrayed or let down by you. Yeah. So... It's an awful situation. It's very messy. I don't think Ann Taylor is doing anything wrong here. And I believe, based on what I've learned about her and her reputation, she is going to do everything she can to make sure that this is handled appropriately. I think a lot of people who follow high-profile cases sort of see 
And, and some of this is media depictions sort of see defense attorneys as maybe the villains, right? Where they're, you know, you're trying, your job is to try to acquit this horrible person who's accused of doing these horrible things. I think, first of all, it's important to remember that everyone is presumed innocent until proven guilty in, in a court of law. So the prejudgment's probably not too helpful. But, you know, let's say it's a case where it seems very obvious, right? I think it's really important for people, even if you're rooting for the person to go away for the murder, to remember that without a really talented defense attorney, if you have someone who's not doing their job well and is blowing the case for the defense, then that makes it much more liable to get overturned on appeal and for the families to have to go through the process once again because there was some sort of issue with how it was tried in the first place and there was ineffective counsel. You want a solid defense attorney to be able to advocate for their client's rights and try their best because... It's just a more solid trial, and the whatever the result will be upheld if it's a conviction. So, I don't know. I just think we should all be looking at these issues with, with some nuance and with sympathy for the family in this case, but also an understanding of, of the function of a defense attorney in a case like this. Yes. And as I say, I understand why people have uh, an instinctive... Uh, distaste for this sort of thing i've even seen some attorneys say that it doesn't look good but the fact is there doesn't appear to be any sort of a conflict of interest here yeah and again like i think the optics are terrible i mean i like just from a media perspective yeah that looks awful but sometimes things look awful and then when you look a bit closer you can understand why it had to be that way and i think that's this maybe looks to me like one of those situations where, you know, you can agree it looks terrible, but maybe was necessary at the same time. I, I agree completely. So that sort of concludes our discussion on the University of Idaho murders case for today. We will continue to be reporting on this case going forward, providing legal analysis, hopefully talking to some folks. And so stay tuned if you would like to follow our coverage of the case and certainly Get in touch. Let us know if you have any suggestions for angles or if you yourself have some insights that could be relevant to the case. Certainly, if you are involved with the investigation or any aspect of it, reach out. We're at murdersheet at gmail.com and we would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murder sheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the murder sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, 
but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.